Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? It's going good. Um, This has been a busy week in the SBC. We had a busy week last year, this week in the SBC. This week, uh, once again, is, is just proving to be like the busiest week of the year for the SBC. My goodness. It, you know, for the last few weeks, we've just had not a lot at all. It's just been very slow, a story here or there, and uh, kind of getting ready for the convention. And then it was like all of them dropped at once. Yes. Everything seemed to drop this week. So you and I have been waiting on some election news. We've been waiting on some some other news and some research. We knew the ACP was coming. And guess what? It all came this week. All at the same time. Yep. And so we're going to jump into that. And, Amy, we have a special bonus. You were in town this week, um, and I was over at the ERLC Academy, and uh, which was a great event, by the way. I, I just want to, real quick, hats off to those guys. They make that room look cool. They do a good job with that. So I got a question. Do you think they make that room look cool, or is it that when you walk in, the room looks? Oh, it's not me. Trust me. Okay. And ain't just nobody to, in that room would, would argue that. Because I could barely walk in, by the way, on that on Monday. Yes. I, I threw out my back last weekend. I'm, I'm apparently, I can hurt my back tying my shoes years old now. Um, there you so go. So I threw out my back and the folks at the URLC Academy, special shout out to Jill Wagner. She took care of me like I, I, I could never have expected whenever I got to URLC Academy. She saw the pain I was in, got me a special chair that was a lot more padded, a lot more comfortable for me, just really made me welcome. And, and it just really helped me out a lot on Monday. I'm better now. I'm not quite 100%, but I could barely move Monday. It was bad. But they took care of me. I got to see you and Keith and um, just had a good week. So it was a good week and, you know, always good to see friends from all over the SPC. Yes. You and I also got something. Each of us did. Um, there are new, the, the t-shirts are done, are ready yes. for Birmingham. I have a and we got our hands on t-shirts. I have a gospel above all t-shirt. And and while I was there also, I forgot. This was Ronnie Floyd's first week in office in, it in was. the office. It was it was fun to see him in the building. I went up to the 7th floor, got a chance to say hello to friends up there and there he was on his first day. Yes, and I interviewed him on his second day. So awesome. we got an interview with Ronnie Floyd coming later in the episode. Just a, about a 14-minute interview with him. And uh, he was gracious enough to give us time on his second day there. And and um, it, it was, you know, we got to hear his heart and his plans for the EC. So we'll have that for you later in the episode. But before we get into it, we need to thank our sponsors up at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, located in Louisville, Kentucky. They're committed to training future pastors, missionaries, and gospel leaders. You can learn more about undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral degree programs by visiting sbts.edu. So I know they're getting geared up for the annual meeting here in just a couple of weeks and uh, their booth is always one that is buzzing at the annual meeting so be sure to stop by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary booth at the SBC annual meeting and find out more about Boyce College and Southern Seminary. So Amy let's jump into it we've got a ton of news to cover this week so we're going to hit these really quickly uh, but we're going to we're going to park on this first one because this is a big deal. Dr. Jamie Dew has been nominated to lead New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. This was a big announcement. It dropped on Monday, I believe, and we were we were at the SBC building when it dropped. So 
as soon as it did, lots of, of chatter, you know, around. And I I was not in Wake Forest when it when it hit, but I'm sure here particularly students who are still on campus, you know, kind of a surprise. I'm sure there was a collective gasp in in Wake Forest. Yes. Well, and it's honestly, it's a real mixed bag. And these are the types of situations you want to have where everyone is so excited and thrilled for Dr. Dew and his family and really excited for our sister seminary for New Orleans because we think this is great news for them. But then it sinks in what it will mean to have to say goodbye. And that that can be hard and sad uh, for, for people. So all the emotions are happening around here. And then thinking through all the ways we're going to get to see each other over the next uh, several years. But more than anything, this is fantastic news for New Orleans and for Southern Baptists. He is a great, great leader. Yes, and you you know him well. You've spent time with him the last five to seven years while they've been in Wake Forest. He's his curriculum vitae. I mean, just a, amazing scholar, and has really shaped the College of Southeastern into what it's become today, which is a fantastic place of uh, higher learning. So, why don't you just give us a, a quick overview of Doctor Dew's credentials and, and just where he's been, what he's done, why you guys are so excited about this opportunity for him? Yeah, his credentials are 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 pretty strong because he has two PhDs, which I do not understand. That's two more than both of us combined. Yes, because I'm like, oh my goodness, even one seems really daunting. Uh, So two is pretty incredible. And they're both in philosophy. And so he's got these, he he will sit around. I remember one night uh, they were over at our house. We just had a fire in the fire pit in the back. And he and Keith were sitting around debating uh, something about where Keith was being the theologian and Jamie Dew was being the philosopher. And they were back and forth and getting into things that Tara and I just finally looked at each other and said, we're going inside. So he's a really, really uh, brilliant thinker. Also got his MDiv at Southeastern Seminary. So one PhD is from Southeastern, one is from University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, got his MDiv at Southeastern and also went to Lewisburg College and Toccoa Falls as well. So he's been dean of the college here and vice president for uh, academic support. So distance learning basically has, has been a real focus of his and teaching philosophy, supervising PhD students, has written several books, just lots of great scholarship. Also had like 10 years pastoral experience, um, pastored a church here in the Wake Forest area for a long time, and just a great contributor to the community. He is from Wake Forest, North Carolina. So that's kind of unique. You don't, we don't always get that. Most people relocate here, but he and Tara are both from here. They have four kids, two sets of fraternal twins, which is kind of unique. Kind of, kind of unique, Amy. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to it now. They're great. That's quite They're amazing. unique. Yes. Yes. So they have just wonderful family and, uh, we have spent a lot of time with them. They are our, uh, our kind of RV friends. We did a, a big, our big RV trip a few years ago was with their family and uh, the Hutchinson family out west. And then last year, we did another RV trip with the Dews up to Canada. And uh, so they're, you know, camping friends and, and things like that. We we have a great time. And Tara Dew, she has an EDD that she just got from Southeastern 
and uh, did her dissertation on the work that seminaries do to prepare uh, pastors' wives to to go out into their different contexts. And so that should serve her well in this new context. Yeah, so some really great research there. They are an incredible family, and so I know when they are presented to the full board, that will just be a, a, a really good day. I know it'll be good for the board to meet all of them, and uh, so this, is an, this is an exciting nomination for them and New Orleans. All right, well, that's, that's the good news of the week, Amy. Now to some not-so-good news. We had the ACP data that was released this week, and we are down across the board. You and I did a Facebook Live with Scott McConnell. We'll link to that here in the show notes as well uh, to really kind of unpack this data. Give us the rundown real quick on the data and and what we're seeing in the ACP report that was released this week. The tough thing, as you said, it's just down across the board. So usually we've had years where there's there's one or two very clear bright spots. And and we have a few small ones, but as far as really clear, that's tougher. So basically we we did a graphic we put out that that gave an overview. Membership is down uh by about a hundred and ninety thousand. Churches are down by about eighty eight, so it's very uh very small number, but that's number of churches. Church type church type missions, we're at four thousand, that's down uh about by about two hundred and ninety one, we're four thousand eighty five actually. Attendance is down to uh just over five million. That's that's down 22,700. Small group attendance also down by almost 100,000. That's coming in at just over 3 million. And then baptisms are down, which that's, that's the tough one. I mean, we've seen that for, for several years, but always just tough. So they are at 246,442. That's down 7680 from last year. So the tough part is just those, num- those metrics that we really look at uh, no increases at all. The decreases, and some of them are slight, but no increases at all. Our conversation with Scott McConnell did dig into some of the brighter spots, digging into some of the things that are going on in the States, uh, some increases in in giving, other other things that are good. Uh, but all in all, this wasn't it wasn't the release you would hope for. No, it wasn't. And, and some of those bright spots, we do want to cover that because we don't want to just be, you know, uh, cover all the sour notes here on right. podcast, but we do want to highlight some of these things. And we released these, uh, there were, there were 10 images of released through Instagram. So getting in that social media thing over here and, uh, Facebook, but, uh, Florida had 26,162 baptisms last year. That was the highest state convention total. The state of Texas had more, but because of two of the state's conventions, uh, combined, but the individual state convention highest was Florida with 26,000. That was 1,245 more than it had the previous year. Colorado saw 1,834 baptisms, which was a 24% increase from the year before. California had the biggest increase. Uh, They had 2,653 more baptisms in 2018 than they did in 2017. That was a a total of 12,212 baptisms in the state of California with the California Baptist Convention. Uh, Michigan saw their baptisms increase 20% in 2018. Nevada increased 15% in 2018. New York had 2,434 baptisms in 2018, which was 12% more than they had in 2017. Your state of North Carolina, Amy, had 17,511 baptisms, uh, which is 469 more than the previous year. Puerto Rico showed a 113% increase uh, in baptisms. That was mainly due to because 
they're reporting now. We had some churches actually report from well, there Puerto you Rico. Go. We, we've yeah. had trouble getting data in the past, but now with the new uh, executive director down there, Felix Cabrera, we're getting data from Puerto Rico, which is helpful. And, and we'll talk about a little bit at the end here, talk about uh, the reporting and how that plays into it. Uh, but the West Virginia also increased bear baptisms by 38%, uh, up to 656 from 476 in 2017. And then Wyoming saw a whopping 55% increase in 2018. They baptized 295 in 2018 compared to 190 the year before. But reporting plays a lot into this if because baptisms are not, quote-unquote, brought forward. Scott talked a little bit about that in the, uh, the Facebook Live. But it's important for your churches to report these data because if we don't have baptisms, we can't count them. Like if, if you don't report them, we can't count them in the stats. And, right. and I think that's one of the big reasons we're seeing uh, the baptisms drop precipitously compared to the other stats is because some of the others are, are kind of shaped and, and Scott, you know, talked about how they smooth a little bit of those. But baptisms are raw data. And if reporting is down, baptisms aren't going to be down because people aren't reporting those numbers. And our reporting right. was was one of the lowest years it's ever been, if not the lowest year for reporting. So we've got to do a better job reporting because we don't really know where we truly are unless people report. And unfortunately, a lot of churches, uh, about a, one in four churches are not reporting. So the moral of that story, report, report, report. Absolutely, Amy. They got to report. And that wasn't the only release that we had from Lifeway Research this past week. We had one on sexual abuse perceptions in the SBC by churchgoers. So a big release, this was on uh, Tuesday, I believe, on sexual abuse. That's a conversation that continues in the SBC. So walk us through this data, Amy. We've been looking for this research for a while. We, uh, I, I knew that in the work of the Sexual Abuse Advisory Group, there was a research project that was going to come at some point that Lifeway Research had kind of joined in into that. And so we did, we did get that. And we were, I was in Nashville at the time. We were at the, the SBC building when that dropped. And so had a lot of conversations with folks who were at the ERLC event. And, uh, what, what this research was doing was to try and get the perceptions and experiences of Southern Baptist and Protestant churchgoers. Yeah, and I think that's important where you mentioned perceptions because this research is is not telling us really about the truth of what's going on. It's telling us about their perceptions. It's what the people in the church think about sexual misconduct, and it right. may not always completely reflect the reality of what's going on in the church. Right. So what is important is for us to understand where does this research fit into the data that we need to know? So you can look at it and, and you say, well, that doesn't match up with what we know. That's part of the point is for us to begin to be able to compare what are the perceptions of people along with what we do know and how do we reflect on that? So this just adds to the body of work uh, that has been building as we begin to learn, uh, really to look in the mirror, to learn about ourselves and where where we are. It's really important. We'll have the link in the show notes so that you can go yourself and look at the Baptist Press article, but then you can actually go and look at the full report uh, yourself that, that Lifeway yeah. Research has. And this is when you need to look at the full report because right. you can't just like read the highlights and, and think you've got it fully digested. There's a lot going on here. Right. But just to kind of give some snapshots, thinking about Southern Baptist churchgoers, one in three believe that more 
Protestant pastors have sexually abused children or teens than have been currently exposed. So 32% think that what we know uh, is not accurate, that there's more. 43% disagree. 25% say they don't know. When you look at those who think more undiscovered incident instances of Protestant pastors who have sexually assaulted adults, it's just a little bit fewer. 29% think there are more, you know, so, so they broke out child abuse and assault uh, of an adult. So they, they broke those things out as the, the quote Scott McConnell said, because perceptions are reality when almost a third of churchgoers sense that there are more stories coming churches have to address this because even if very few of them, only 3% know someone who has sexually abused a child or 3% sexually assaulted someone but has not yet come to light. Now, I have to tell you something that was tough for me about that. The question was, uh, if you know someone attending your church who has sexually abused a child but has not yet come to light, I struggled with that even being 3% because I wanted to say, Why is that not 0%? Because if you know that, then you should report it. That was, that was hard for me. Three is, is low, but it's not low enough. Um, so it just interesting. Now, here was one where it talked about more than a third of Southern Baptist churchgoers, 37%, say they have been victims of certain types of sexual misconduct, unwanted sexual joking, unsolicited sexual messages, unwanted compliments, and inappropriate glances. Uh, that question was interesting to me because I think a lot of people don't even recognize that as misconduct, as inappropriateness. And uh, and 37% say, I've been on the receiving end of that. And I think what that has to sink in is that that's not a good thing. No one wants to be on the receiving end of that. And that we have to recognize what is appropriate and what is not. There are several, several other ones uh, talked about the effects of it on church, of this on church attendance. But then it was interesting because most Southern Baptist churchgoers believe their church is prepared to handle issues and of sexual abuse and trust their congregation to respond appropriately. So 62% think their church is very prepared. 24% think their church is somewhat prepared. So we're talking like 86% think their churches are prepared to protect children from sexual abuse in ministry programs. This is perception, but our churches need to make sure this is our church leaders need to, to hear that and say, there is a high level of trust in your ministry programs. The data tells us that um, you need to, we need to make sure that our systems are tightened so that that trust is, uh, warranted. Yeah. And, and if I can interject on that, we've seen instances come up in churches. I, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but I don't think 86% of the churches that we have seen this happen in, uh, since you and I've been doing this podcast have handled it well. It, it, it's not even near that number. Churches often don't handle this well. And that's part of the problem because the churchgoers think that they will, but they often don't. We've, we've seen maybe just a handful of cases that we, you and I would look at and go, Oh yeah, they handled that well. Uh, many of them don't, unfortunately. Right. And it's not for lack of, you know, wanting to or trying, but just recognizing that you can't wait for 
a crisis to happen before you are preparing for it. Does yes. that does that make sense? Yes. You have to yeah, prepare it for it now. And just to recognize that people are are putting their trust in in what we what in, in our systems and what we are doing. Yeah, and one of the other stats and, and we'll kind of end it on this cuz we're going to do a we're going to do another Facebook live with Scott in a couple of weeks about this. So keep in touch on Facebook and Twitter. We're going to have Scott on to talk specifically about this research project as well after Memorial Day, the week after Memorial Day between that and uh, the SBC annual meeting. But the uh, stat that if sexual misconduct allegations were made against the pastor, most churchgoers say they would want a careful investigation of the facts, but that most is only 75%. So if there's sexual misconduct allegations against the pastor, only three and four churchgoers say that they should have a careful investigation, which right. that boggled the mind. I'm like, no, we That's need a hundred percent there. Right. Twenty five percent. Yeah. And then are, are actually do not call. And and here's what was interesting for me. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I I understood that. Was that a question where you could choose more than one? I think it was. It's possible. Um, but that. You've got to and if, and if, handle that. And if so, right. And if so, what that means is there were 25% of people actively not selecting that. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. they, it, and so everyone should want a careful investigation. Yes. Because, because one of the big criticisms is false accusations, you know, and things like that. Well, you, you've got to actually have a careful investigation to know what's going on. So, there, there's some number numbers in this where I just could not wrap my mind around how right. some folks could come to some of those conclusions. Maybe I'm just looking at it in a different light. I don't know. We're, we'll have the whole link. We're going to break this down further with Scott McConnell. And this, these are important things that we need to know. Facts are our friends that we need to know going into the annual meeting because we're going to have a lot of discussions about this, um, about who we are, how we as a, how we as, as a family of churches are going to handle this at different levels. And so we want to make sure we have a, a real understanding of this data. Uh, so stay tuned. We're going to have that before we get to Birmingham. On this topic, the IMB this week had a trustee meeting, and uh, we don't have a full trustee recap yet. That'll probably come in next week's show. But during the meeting, uh, they were presented findings from Gray Plant Moody, which was an examination task force that came in and looked at some of the previous handling of past allegations of sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the IMB. And they committed to the recommendations. We'll link to the entire recommendations. It's a long document. Uh, but there are several recommendations that were made uh, in where they need to improve policies. Uh, we, we talked about, you, you mentioned earlier, you need to have a plan before something happens. You can't make the plan in the crisis. Paul Chitwood, the president of the IMB, a- acknowledged the report and said that, I, that while he recognized that some people were harmed by the way IMB has responded to these types of allegations throughout the 174-year history, um, he apologized for it and committed that they will do better in the future, said they are committed to making the changes necessary to better prevent instances of child abuse and sexual harassment and to better care for victims while holding perpetrators accountable. So we'll link to the full story and the full report from Gray Plant Moody, and, and you can see what they are recommending. Uh, a lot of it deals with improving the policies for handling those cases at the IMB. All right. So let's uh, let's go to NAM and their trustee meeting 
as well. That was uh, May 20th and 21st at their building in Georgia. They Their big highlight was a Monday night dinner honoring Southern Baptist chaplains. So uh, that, that was kind of a special, a special time. Also, they approved a $124 million operating budget for 2020. Um, they also, they reported that their revenue outpaced budget for by 2.6%. And because Easter fell three weeks later, the revenue from Annie Armstrong is going to lag a little bit behind. They reelected Eric Thomas, pastor of First Baptist Norfolk, as the second vice chairman, Danny DeArmas, from First Baptist Orlando as vice chairman and Danny Wood, pastor of Shades Mountain Church in Birmingham and president of the SBC Pastors Conference, reelected as the chairman. So it sounds like it was a, a really good meeting, very positive time. Yes. And we talked a little bit about the ACP reports and some of the baptism numbers and everything like that. They, they also talked about that at the trustee meeting there for the North American Mission Board. Kevin Ezell quoted in the story here saying, outside the South, 27% of all Southern Baptist congregations were started since 2010. So take that southern chunk of the SBC and move outside of that. One in four of every church outside the South has been started since 2010. And 11% of all the churches that we have in the SBC, that includes the South, have been started since 2010. So of that um, 47,000, that would mean about uh, you know roughly 5,100 churches have been started since 2010 across the SBC, which is pretty incredible. And then also uh, regarding baptisms, 18% of all baptisms reported by Southern Baptists in the United States came from churches started since 2010. Of that that 11%, there 18% of the baptisms are coming from those churches. And then get this, Amy, I know you love Canada. 71% of all baptisms among Canadian Baptists came from churches started since 2010. That's fantastic. I do love Canada. That's great news. Yes. Nam was also involved in a dedication of a new church building for First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs. It was an emotional day. I'm sure I had a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Ezel earlier this week. He had nothing but fine things to say about the the folks down in Sutherland Springs and the SBTC. Uh, Dr. J.D. Greer was on hand for that as well. They had a memorial uh, for that, and he, he said it was one of the most moving times uh, that he has been a part of in a, a local church context. So uh, just a, a an incredible thing coming from that tragedy that occurred just uh, about 18 months ago down in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And uh, Nam has been very instrumental in that, uh, as long with the SBTC. So uh, we're praying for the Pomeroys. We got to meet a lot of them last year at the SBC annual meeting, and I, I believe they're going to be there again this year. Uh, we're, we're doing something with them. I think it's a Lifeway Breakfast. We have a video from them about how they are carrying on in uh, the wake of this um, tragedy down in Sutherland Springs. But uh, an incredible Sunday this past week in Texas. Excellent. I heard really good things about it also. All right. Amy, we have some election news. Finally get to uh, these holes that we've been waiting to be filled. Run us through these three nominees that we have up this week. So it was announced that Marshall Osbury will be the will be nominated for SBC first vice president. He is senior pastor of Antioch Baptist Church in Fairfax Station. 
Virginia and Vance Pittman will be announcing him. He is the current president of the National African American Fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention. So we have a, a Baptist Press story about that, kind of gives some uh, background to his experience. So far, he's the only nominee for first vice president. So it'll be interesting to see if we have uh, any additional ones. Also, Noe Garcia senior pastor of North Phoenix Baptist Church. He will be nominated as second vice president. And uh, Micah Fries will be not announced he would be nominating him for that. He's very involved in the SBC uh, at a lot of different levels, was was kind of on a, a for a day on the national scene because he he participated in some of the the uh, events surrounding John McCain's funeral. Is that correct? Am I remembering yes. that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I remember uh, seeing him on television and uh, during all of that, and did did a great job. was was highly uh, complimented for just how he led in in that service and uh, how he led in in what they were doing there at North Phoenix. So he will be nominated as second vice president. So at this stage, the only nominee uh, for that spot, and then. David Youth, pastor of First Baptist Church in Orlando, will be nominated for president of the Pastors Conference by James Merritt. So uh, three really big announcements on that. We've been waiting for those spots uh, just to see if anyone would come forward with a nominee. And now they uh, they all came this week. Yeah, they did. And we have some news from our seminaries, Amy. Uh, we, we talked the, the big story of the week, uh, you know, from New Orleans. We have some other news from our seminaries. Spurgeon College, which is the undergraduate program at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, announced this week they're going to start intercollegiate sports with a basketball program, which uh, makes me pretty That's happy. That's a big deal. So what we need to do, we need to figure out how to get a Spurgeon College versus Boyce College game at the annual meeting every year for the Golden Gavel. And it could be like the trophy Interesting. that goes back and forth. Interesting. Because it's at the annual meeting and gavels and this, you know, I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I guess so. It okay. could be. It would be fun. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, more news from Midwestern. Historian Thomas Kidd was announced this week as a distinguished professor. He's going to be a visiting professor uh, for church history there at Midwestern. So congratulations to them and, and to Thomas Kidd for that. And we have another faculty hire over at Southwestern. Travis Kearns, who's the Sin City missionary in Salt Lake City, uh, will be joining the Southwestern faculty as associate professor of apologetics and world religions. Uh, Kearns is kind of the foremost expert on ministry to Mormons, uh, obviously with his uh, Sin City missionary status in Salt Lake City. So he's a B&H author, wrote a book on uh, sharing the gospel with Mormons. So I have it on my shelf right over here to my right. Congratulations to Southwestern and Midwestern on those faculty hires. Very cool. Yeah, Thomas Kidd, that was a big a big announcement that I noticed just because of my interest in history. Uh, so he's got an excellent reputation, and I have heard tremendous things about Travis Kearns and the work that he does. All right, we have uh, two final stories, some sad news. Charles Barnes, who was the executive director at one point for the Baptist Convention of Maryland-Delaware, passed away at age 86 this past week, and also in North Carolina. Amy, I'm going to let you cover this story uh, because he was a a friend of yours and a friend of Southeastern's. M.O. Owens was a pastor in the western part of the state, Gastonia area. Uh, He died on May 20th, and he's one that 
may not be a name that everyone knows right off made a tremendous difference in North Carolina and in the SBC, really, with some of the work he did back in the early 1970s in the early conservative resurgence movement. Very influential. Uh, Emma Owens was, died as at age 105. So his some of his greatest impact and influence came before you and I were even born. Um, I, knew, I knew someone who here who went and visited him, one of uh, my co-workers, and really was several years into their career here and was visiting and talking to him and found out that Emma Owens retired before he was even born. Wow. Um, so it was just kind of funny even having that conversation, realizing all the things that he had done. But he was a great friend to Southeastern Seminary, one of our uh, strongest supporters. And what's incredible is that he would drive to our Southeastern Society meetings at like age 98, 99, and would come and preach. I mean, it's phenomenal, the energy that he had. And so just a very sweet, kind man. But the impact that he had, he helped form what was called the Baptist Faith and Message Fellowship around uh, 1973 with Bill Powell, who worked at the Home Mission Board, they actually began doing some initial work looking at the structure of the SBC, which led to what began in the late 70s and had a, a ton of influence. Some historians can look and say that what happened really couldn't have happened without their work on the on the front end. So while they weren't necessarily up front in a lot of the things in the 80s, uh, they laid some groundwork for the change that happened. And uh, so a huge legacy for Southern Baptists that many may not even know um, and live to 105 uh, faithful to the Lord. All right. Well, thank you for sharing about Mr. Owens. And that's going to do it for the news this week. A lot of news, but uh, we've got a great little quick interview here with the new president and CEO of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Ronnie Floyd. Today on SBC This Week, we're joined by Dr. Ronnie Floyd. He's the new president and CEO of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. On the second day on the job, we're getting in, in here. I was, I was shocked that we had the opportunity and the availability to get in here so soon. So thank you for joining us. Oh, listen, it's a pleasure. You know, I'm a chronic listener yeah. of this podcast. And we appreciate and believe that. In, believe in you and Amy. Appreciate the message you're trying to help us get out to share, and I want to help that. All right. Well, we appreciate that, and uh, you, you – probably our most frequent guest now that I think about it because we started this all about four years ago and I, you were our first episode that's right and it was a I long think, one too uh, yeah <laughs> we've done we've done a lot of we've done a lot since then and uh yeah 200 and something episodes since and amazing uh, i think you this makes your fourth time on the podcast if mm. i believe if i'm yeah, correct i'm not I think sure we had you each year and then we had you another time talking mm. about the gcr at one point yeah so, that's right right here so we are thankful for you and the time and the support for the podcast we appreciate that so ec you're here first day on the job like in boots on the ground here in nashville it was yesterday so you know talk to us a little about about your goal for the executive committee and, and what you would like to see this fiduciary of the spc kind of accomplish with you as president and ceo well jonathan i think it's time that we create a culture and foster a culture in the southern Baptist convention that is really more about what we are about, and that is really taking the gospel to the nations, forwarding the Great Commission like never before, doing everything we can 
to really lead us into reaching this world for the gospel and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's imperative that the churches and the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention have to ask ourselves this question. Do we really believe this stuff or not? If we do, then it's time to step up and to go forward in a way like we've never gone before. And we've got to learn in a more effective way to go together. And that's the kind of culture that I want to build. Yeah. And you know, the first real opportunity you get to display that, so to speak, would be the annual meeting just coming up in a couple of weeks. That's right. Just a couple of weeks out. And we're going to Birmingham. I know whenever you're the president, we had uh, meetings in Columbus and St. Louis. And I might add, I, Columbus, can we go back there at some point? That was, I really thought that was a great venue for everything. So that I, I really enjoy that convention. Um, but uh, as far as it goes to annual meetings, what, what should we expect in Birmingham? Maybe not just from, from what you'll be doing with the EC, but for on a whole. And then maybe in the future, what you'd like to see the annual meetings become? Because the EC... They kind of host the annual meeting. They run it. They put it on. So how does that look? What does that look like, you know, going forward as we, we go through, you know, not just Birmingham. I know you haven't been there long enough really to, to really put too much of an imprint on that. But as far as we go to Orlando and Nashville and Anaheim and so forth. I think it's important that we really establish the kind of culture where you don't want to miss what's going on. Uh, the fear of missing out needs to hit the Southern Mavis Convention every year. There is no gathering that should catch our attention nor uh, call for our allegiance uh, beyond the local church any more than this gathering. Uh, because this should be where we come together, we celebrate what God has done, uh, we get new vision, fresh, uh, fresh touch, fresh challenges that come about that really move us towards the future of where we need to go. Uh, you know, every year is filled with its own opportunities. We know that this year, one of our greatest opportunities is how are we going to step into and come away out of Birmingham, Alabama, uh, with a clear, compelling, convictional message about what Southern Baptists believe about sexual abuse and about how we're going to do everything we can to build local churches and to encourage local churches into becoming safe environments for uh, children, for the vulnerable, whatever situation it may be. We've got to come away with such a clear statement about that, Jonathan, that there is no longer a debate, if there is a debate. How do you maybe anticipate those conversations going forward? Uh, maybe not this conversation, that per se, but sure. as, as we go to Orlando and Nashville and the different cities uh, down the road. I think, it's, I think it's imperative on me as the leader uh, of the executive committee to, to just really call people together. And to not just call them together, but to convene them together. You know, we can go further uh, together than we're ever going to go alone. And we've got to learn the power of collaboration, the power of agreement, the power of unity. There's nothing like it. And we, we have enough tension in our society. We don't need to be bringing tension. We need to be the answer. We need to be the healing power that this is a forceful, blessed family of God that really does want to find ways to do what we do in a positive, powerful way for the gospel. That's what we're about. Your role as president, we mentioned you were president of SBC 2014 through 15 and then 15 to 16. 
How do you see that role being similar? And how do you see it being different than your current role here at the EC? Well, obviously, the president of the Southern Maps Convention is elected to uh, usually two one-year back-to-back terms. Uh, he's elected by the people um, to forward what God has put on his heart. What the executive committee does and the president and the CEO of the executive committee does is that he and his team are the constant um, the constant persons that are, are forwarding and championing the vision of, uh, of reaching this world with the gospel. And that we are the, we are the group that is here every day that is, that is, that is getting prepared for battle and to lead churches into battle, um, to really doing what we can to make a difference in this nation and around the world. So regardless of the presidents, they come and go. Uh, but this role here is constant. It's important. Um, it's, it's, it's the one group that has the power to touch, uh, churches. Uh, that has influences with every entity in the SPC, uh, every state convention in the SPC, or all of our associations. I mean, we can be the group that connects people and moves people and mobilizes people to where we want them to go as we agree upon as being Southern Baptist where we want to go. How can we do that in the most effective way? I'm here as a pastor. I'm going to always think as a pastor. I'm not going to apologize for being a pastor. And a pastor is who is who you are more than simply by what you do. And God's given me the heart of a pastor. I'll forever speak like that. And I can identify with pastors. I can understand pastors. We're here. We are a convention of churches. And guess what? Most of those churches have pastors. Most of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully all of them will one day have pastors. And uh, and that's what I want to do. I want to mobilize the church. So when we talk about mobilizing connecting the state conventions, local associations, what are some maybe some low-hanging fruit you've been able to identify? Maybe before you even got here, maybe as you've gotten here, uh, that that can be approved upon. Well, I believe one of the things that can be improved upon is the executive committee can become a uh, group of people that not just work towards the annual convention, but that we help carry the vision of mobilizing as many Southern Baptists as we can towards that. And while I believe efforts have been there, I think we can accelerate those efforts in all kinds of ways. Uh, and we're, we're, we're going to start doing that even starting next year. We've even started some of these things this year. Um, so I think that's one of those things. I think also telling the story of what God is doing in the churches of our convention. I think one of the things your podcast does is it tells the story of what's happening in many of our entities. That's one of your major roles. And one of our major roles needs to be telling the story of what's happening in our churches across our convention. I mean, when I think about the stories that I, I have seen uh, written um, by Baptist Press relating to matters that uh, Dr. Paul Chitwood has been involved in uh, in recent days, um, and, and, and the whole elements of where he was last week and then back over, uh, overseas, uh, three or four weeks ago. Powerful stories. Um, and so that's what connects people to the cooperative program and giving through the cooperative program, Jonathan. And that's what people must understand. We must do that. Perfect segue to the last question is cooperative program. That's something that we, we saw kind of trail away in the early 20 teens. Uh, most of that due to the, Economic recession. I mean, we kind of understood that. We've seen it kind of swing back. But last couple of years, we've seen it kind of plateau a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're sitting on that $197 million mark. 
what's it going to take for us to kind of take that to the next level, move that beyond 200, you know, to 200 and beyond? Sure. Great question. And uh, we spent time even on that today, and we've been spending time on that. And what we ultimately believe is that we have to prioritize, uh, we've got to elevate, and we've got to accelerate the giving from our churches towards reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk about low-hanging fruit. This is not about the cooperative program. This is about reaching people for Christ. This is about reaching into every state, reaching across our nation, and reaching across the world for Jesus Christ. That's low-hanging fruit. We have to tell the story, keep the mission focused, and uh, we've got to stay uh, talking more about the mission than we do about the vehicle that, that helps fuel that mission. And I believe that people, uh, what I found as a pastor, again, is that, is that money follows vision. And we've got to tell the story of the vision. I'm convinced that churches will go higher. Churches will come back on that. Churches that might have been on the sidelines will come back. What we have to do is we have to believe in them. And we have to really step up to this, Jonathan. And Gina, this is something Gina and I have had to deal with personally. We just did it. We walked away from a church that we love and they love us. 32 years and seven months have I given my life. But I tell you what it was, Jonathan. It was my message in 2015 in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention that you named a moment ago in Columbus that I had to step up and I had to answer my own question. Do I really believe what I challenged this convention to do? That it's time to prioritize this worldwide mission and the Holy Spirit just really... <laughs> really just really empowered me in my heart where, you know, sweetheart, we have to figure this out. Are we going to believe this stuff or not? That's what every church has to do about lostness, about reaching the world. And if we do, then we've got to step up financially in every way and in mobilizing people in every way to touch this world to the gospel and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just want to open it up to you to be just talk to the, the listeners, to tell them where you want to see them. You know, how, how can they better pray for you? Yeah. How can they better partner with the EC hmm. uh, as well as just other Southern Baptist entities and, and you know, agencies and state conventions, sure. whatever it may be. What, what are some maybe words of encouragement to, to close us out here? Well, I, I think, Jonathan, first of all, the way they can pray for me is, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a new world, and I've been all over Southern Baptist life. I, this, this is the first time I've worked in this environment, but I've done everything else but that in many ways. Is it weird to come in and not be preparing a sermon for Sunday? <laughs> it's a little different. Yes, it is. But I can relax this week because I've been under a heavy load, so I'm grateful for that. But I, but I, but I, I would say that they just need to pray for our adjustment into that. They can pray that God would give me insight and wisdom about where to lead, how to lead, the spirit to lead, um, who to make sure we all have together in all this. Um, I, I think, I think what I would want them to do is let's come together. Let's let's create an environment and a culture where we don't believe. Uh, the worst about something, but let's let's begin to believe the best about something. Let, let's let's give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit more than we've been doing it. Let's build what Jesus says, a culture that that really encourages love. How do we escape the words of Jesus, Jonathan, to love one another? How do how do we how do we justify not doing that? I mean, we have to do that, and then we have to constantly just challenge ourselves. What can we do more 
to reach our town, more to reach our city, more to reach our state, more to reach our nation. What else can we do more to reach this world with the gospel? If there's more out there for us to go do, then I want to encourage churches, let's do it and let's do it together. All right. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us today on the podcast. We appreciate you. We'll be praying for you in the future. Thanks again. Thanks, Jonathan. That was a great conversation, Jonathan, and I'm sorry I missed out on that. I was on my way to a uh, baseball game when that when you all were having that conversation. So. I, I see where your priorities were. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. I was at uh, my... I know, I know. Uh, my brother's team that he coaches made it to the state tournament there and had and uh, had their first round. So I was excited to be in town and get to go cheer them on to their victory, to their one victory in the state tournament that first round. <laughs> so so. It, it didn't work out the next round. Is that what happened? Well, it they I think they knew it was a really great accomplishment for this team to make it into the tournament, and they knew that and were very excited. And so winning that first against a rival in their uh, district I think was was a big deal so we were really excited all right and uh, so all right well that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history Amy blow our minds I just noticed one from 1973 and because we were just talking about M.O. Owens he's kind of my theme for the week uh, it's going to come up in the resource uh, in, in my resource as well but there was a a story about the Portland Southern Baptist Convention that would be coming up that said they did not foresee any controversy. Said more than 10,000 Southern Baptists expected to gather. In Portland, Oregon? Yes. And no controversy with 10,000 Southern Baptists? That's what it said. Okay, good luck with that. um, (laughs) And... It said that uh, that they would come together. They were expecting, you know, all of those. But it talks about that organization, the Baptist Faith and Message Fellowship, that it had just been organized, inten- announcing its intentions to work within the framework of the SBC to oppose theological liberalism, that M.O. Owens was quoted by the Houston Chronicle saying that they were not planning any formal action at the Portland Convention, uh, but hoped that they would sort of consolidate other conservative groups into a strong organization that would have more influence at the convention in Dallas. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting that we uh, have been talking about him this week, and then in 1973, they were getting ready for that meeting, and it was right after that group had been formed. So what it tells us um, is... It, what, it, what it tells us really is that, you know, a lot of the work of the convention and the work to uh, maintain fidelity uh, has been happening for a very long time. And uh, M.O. Owens has gone home to be with the Lord, but he was preparing for the SBC annual meeting, just like we are this week in SBC history. All right. Very cool. Well, that's going to bring us to our resources of the week. Amy, you've kind of already tipped your hand at your resource. So what is it? Yes. So I'm throwing in a couple of chapel sermons, or one was from a board of visitors, what's now the Southeastern Society, a worship gathering in the fall of 2013. So just six years ago, uh, when he was, when M.O. Owens was 99. 
and then a chapel sermon that he did in 2012. So that, you know, seven years ago when he was 98, preached on 2 Thessalonians 3. I was not there for that chapel sermon. Uh, It was right before we moved, but I heard that it was just phenomenal to see this uh, 98-year-old preacher um, faithful as, as he was. That was the chapel where the Emma, the Dr. M.O. Owens Jr. Chair of New Testament Studies was installed uh, with Dr. David Allen Black. But to see this man preaching all the way up until he's almost 100 is a, is a pretty phenomenal thing and, and very inspirational to those in ministry. So I just wanted to throw a couple of his sermons up there. All right. Mine, in honor of our interview this week, is going to be the book by Albert McClellan, the Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. So it's the history of the EC. I'm so, reading that right now. Really? You are? So I it, am. It only goes through 1984. So we need an updated right. version. So yes. you know, Dr. Floyd, I know you listen to this. Let's let's see about updating this and, and getting this going. I, it may be yeah, in the works. Commission I don't know. someone. Yeah. It may be even in the works. I have no idea. But um, yeah. So it's a history of the executive committee through 1984. I would uh, venture to say that a lot has happened at the executive committee since 1984. Uh, I I think so, uh, but it's good to to understand the background, how it began, because we did not have an executive committee in the first, oh goodness, over 50 years of the yeah. Southern Baptist Convention. So it, you know, we, we had a working convention for a long time without an executive committee. So it's interesting to see how it all began. Well, 1845, right? It was seventy-two years before we had an executive committee, right? And now, yeah. yeah. So to see to see why it began, and then how the SBC grew and changed even after that, what uh, the dynamics that came into place. So it's uh, it's very interesting. I'm enjoying it a lot so far, and, and no one is surprised by that. Uh, that you're right. enjoying a history book. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it for our episode this week. A couple of uh, show notes we've got. We're going to try to record our big SBC preview this weekend, get that out to you early next week. And we're going to get with Lifeway Research and Scott McConnell week after next on Facebook. So follow us on Facebook Live. We'll try to do more of those as we can. So that's going to do it for us this week. We'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>